Lord Jesus, may you make your presence known to us as we come to hear what you would say. Lord, I pray that, uh, that it would be the experience of each of us that we've already felt your presence in this room as we've lifted your praises, as we've prayed together. May that continue on now. May you, through your Holy Spirit, just speak to our hearts as only you can. May we look more like you when we leave this time than we did when we came in this morning because we've been in the presence of our God and King. So be glorified, I pray. Uh, may I decrease this morning and may you increase. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we come to this season of, uh, it's kind of back to a lot of things. Back to school, back to life is normal, back to sports are starting up, back to. I started thinking about this and going, what do we as a church need to get back to? And I started thinking, what are, what are the basics? Back to the basics is like a, a very popular phrase. And I started thinking, what are the basics of our church? And as I prayed through that, I was led to the Christian Missionary Alliance Statement of Faith, the basics of our theology. Theology scares some people off. Even me saying that, some of you went, ooh, I don't know about that. Theology can be weaponized and used as like this, you got to be like a top shelf thinker to have th Understand, we all have theology. Every single person has theology. Even atheists have theology. Atheism is a theological stance. Theology simply means study of God, our beliefs about who God is. Even the belief for those that would say there is no God, that is their theology. We all have theology. And, and I started thinking about the alliance theology. We don't, it's not something we talk about a whole lot. Some people who have been coming to the church for a while are surprised to find out we're part of a denomination called the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And there's theology that sets us apart. There, there's theology that we say, this is what it is to be a part of the alliance. This is what sets us apart from some other belief systems or whatever it may be. And so I started thinking, how do we get back to the basics? We, we talk a lot about what the word says about this and what the word says about that. We don't often just sit down and talk about theological statements and really start to kind of break them down and figure, what do we do with that? How does that belief affect my life? And so over the next couple weeks, potentially months, I want to walk through the Alliance, the Christian Missionary Alliance's statement of faith. The, the purpose of a statement of faith, these kind of core doctrines or theological statements is to go, this is what it means to be a part of us. That we all believe these things together, these kind of foundational beliefs, and we can move forward together. And what it also means is this, the things that aren't in the statement of faith, if we disagree on them, guess what? We're okay. Because they're not foundational. Not to say they're unimportant, but the, not all theological ideas and thoughts have the same weight. Certain ones are foundational to where if we don't agree on this, we can't play in the same sandbox together. If we don't agree on this, we may actually be worshiping a different God. And other ones are kind of what it looks like. How do we interact with culture? And how do, There's different tiers to this. And so in our statement of faith, these are the ones that as the Christian Missionary Alliance, we've said, these are the bedrock. These are the ones that we have to be on the same page together to move forward. 
uh, to become a member of this church. We have a covenant of membership that kind of has some basic guidelines. Here's how we should act towards one another, and those are all biblically based. And then there's our statement of faith that's a part of that. Because if somebody comes in and goes, yeah, I love this church, I want to be part of this church, but uh, number two and four I completely disagree with, we, we're going to have some issues. We can't really move forward together. And so the statement of faith, uh, Pastor Andy Stanley calls it the irreducible minimum. If you boil down what our denomination believes to, to the minimum, it's, it's as concentrated as it can be. You can't kind of take any of them out and have the house of cards still stand. That's what our statement of faith is. How many of you know our statement of faith by heart? Me neither. How many of you know how many statements are in our statement of faith? You ever looked at them? There's 12. Uh, like, most of us don't know this. We've kind of gotten away from talking about just strict theology. And so what I want to do is get back to the basics. Here are the things that make us who we are. Now, here's the beautiful thing about the Alliance. When I first became a believer, it was in a, an Alliance church. I was 18. And as I started going, okay, wait, what is it that we believe? And I started looking into it. One of the things that I loved about the Christian Missionary Alliance is we try to keep the main thing the main thing. What you're not going to find is, is these statements that are like really far-reaching and, and drawing lines on these kind of cultural issues. And unless you believe this about this cultural issue, you can, we've kind of left a lot of those things go. And we've said, as long as we can agree on who Jesus is and what he's called us to do, the basics, we can link arms with just about anybody and we can move forward. And so I want to come back and just study these things and find out what is it that makes us who we are. Does this make sense, church? Okay. So the first statement in the Christian Missionary Statement of Faith is this. It sounds simple, but it's profound. There is one God who is infinitely perfect, existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You don't get much more basic than that, right? So what we're going to do is we're going to go through and we're going to break down each part of this and just talk about it. Maybe this is something you've heard your entire life and you're going, okay, yeah, good. Let it be a reminder. Maybe this is something you've never really thought too deeply on. Let's dive into this together. So breaking it down into its parts. The first one, there is one God. This comes from all the way back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is something that the church has believed since before there was a church. Old Testament Israel held this belief. Every day they would pray this as a part of what's called the Shema. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And most of us know this next part because Jesus taught it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. He said that's the greatest commandment. But the thing that sets it up, the thing that love the Lord your God with everything you have stands on, is the Lord our God is one. This, this ties them back to the Ten Commandments. The first of the Ten Commandments, the first thing the Lord says, he goes, look, it, it was his statement of faith. If you're going to be a part of Israel, here's the ten things we got to be on the same page about. And the first one is this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of a land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. There is one and only one God and you shall have no other gods. This was the, the pivotal piece. This was the foundational piece. Because Israel had been coming out of Egypt. The Lord just said, I brought them out of Egypt, this land of slavery. 
How many gods did they have in Egypt? Hundreds. I don't even know the exact number. It was, they had a God of just about everything. There was hundreds of gods. And God was calling them out and he goes, look, here's the first thing we have to agree on. If you're going to be my people, I'm it. There is one and only one God. I am the one who saved you. No one else gets credit for it. There is no other God to be served but our God. Culture has always presented more than one option for worship. All the Egyptian gods, then they get moved into the promised land, and there's all of these different peoples serving all kinds of different gods, and all of their religions had many gods. And so there was thousands of gods to choose from, and God says the foundational piece is you have to remember, it is me and me alone. There are no other gods before me. There is one God. Fast forward hundreds of years and Greece comes in with its God and then Rome comes in with all of its gods. There has always been other options to serve. There have always been other things to look to to try to get to satisfy. Some other things that maybe if we try it this way, maybe if we serve that God, maybe if we bow in this temple, we can get blessed And God, from the very beginning, has said there is one God. It's me and me alone. Everything else is an idol, a false God. So let me ask this question. We've talked about this a little bit. What are the gods or the idols of our culture today? What are the other options that we have to bow down and worship? Maverick? Our phones. phones. There's a lot wrapped up in that. Uh, our phones, and everything that we have at our fingertips, we can begin to look to, this will satisfy me. This will make me feel whole. This will give me purpose. What else? What are, what are the idols, the other gods that our culture presents? Wealth. If I have money, I have security, I have comfort, I can, like, that has become kind of an ultimate god in our culture. Wealth. What else? Okay, there's the actual other religions, the world religions, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and the gods that they offer. They're witchcraft. They're, there's, yes, there's some that are more acceptable culturally than others, but there are so many other options to literally sing and worship and bow down and worship. Most of us aren't going to bow down and worship our phone. We worship it in different ways, but there's actual other religions to choose from as well. What else? Oh, are we allowed to say that? Political parties. If we get the right guy in office or girl, everything will be fixed. That's what's going to solve our problems is if the right people get in office, then we'll be okay. We can very easily turn that into a God that we serve, an idol that we serve. What else? Ambition, just getting what I want out of life, climbing that ladder, getting recognized, whatever it may be. Joe, you had your hand up? Social media. Okay. Man, those likes feel good, don't they? We can begin to worship at an altar of being found, being heard, being recognized, being noticed. We start to feel like we're somebody now. The environment, the natural world. Okay. 
yeah, there, there is kind of a, a shift in focus right now. And part of it is in a healthy way. As believers, I believe that we are called to take care, to be good stewards of the worlds God has given us. But that can go too far to become that's the ultimate good. Whatever, man, there's all kinds of, you know, Mother Earth and all that kind of stuff. But that, that is the ultimate good. And whatever is our ultimate good, whatever is the ultimate purpose, is ultimately our God. Yeah, yeah. Our, our, our families, especially our children, can become idols in our lives. They can become the greatest good. They can become, like when we're, when we're deciding between this path or this path, what's going to put my kids in the best situation? If that's the, the chief end, we've missed it. And listen, most idols, not all, but most idols are, are good and maybe even helpful things taken too far. Our phone's a bad thing. Some of you raised your eyebrows on it. No, they're really a neutral thing. They are what we make of them. Is social media a bad thing? No. Is politics a bad thing? No. Is money a bad thing? No. Is the earth a bad thing? No. But it's when we take those good things, the gifts that God has given us, and we take them too far. We put them on too high of a pedestal one way that, that some have said this is, is we start looking at the gifts and forget about the giver. Those things become idols in our lives. And we've forgotten that there is only one God. There's always been a temptation to add to God. When he said, no other gods before me, the first time I read that, when I, again, uh, a much younger man, and I read through and I was like, okay, so is it okay to have like a God two, three, and four as long as they're behind him? You know what I mean? Like, there's kind of this pyramid, and as long as he's at the top, it's okay. There's always been this temptation to add to him. This was what Israel did and got in so much trouble for in the Old Testament. Rarely did they say, forget Yahweh, we don't need him. They would say, he's good, but we also need this one, and this one, and this one. And they would try to add to him. There's always been this temptation, and it's the same today. Many of us, maybe without thinking it, have thought, God is really good, but if I could also get some money, then I'd be secure. Then I'd be really, really good. If I could also get some people to, to know my name, you know, got, kind of get a platform, get people to like what I do and to notice me and recognize me, then I'd be really, really good. There's always been a temptation to add to God, and we have to come back to this, this basic foundational theology. There is only one God. Only one God was ever meant to satisfy the needs that we have. We cannot get hooked looking at the gifts and forgetting about the one who gives them. C.S. Lewis says it like this. Uh, we've, we've read this quote before. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. Think about that. He who has God plus money in the bank plus food in the fridge plus a warm, healthy marriage, plus a thriving business, whatever it may be, has nothing more than he who has God only. Do we, do we really believe that? So in looking at that, then, that would just completely, like, 
comfort. Is there, yeah. Because isn't that what we need? Like, it's like, oh, like, I, I can't be patient with my kids because I just didn't get enough sleep last night. You know what I mean? Like, I just, and I need sleep plus God in order to be. Sure. Like, like, I just, it's like we need it. Or, like, I don't feel well, so I just can't do this thing right now that you're calling me to do. You know, like. Yeah. But if he's all we need. Right. Then whether we feel great physically or financially or emotionally or yeah. not. Those excuses that we give, maybe maybe we don't ever say them out loud, but those excuses we have in our head, man, if I could just get some more sleep, if I just had a little bit more in the bank, if I, when we, if you listen to yourselves, those will start to reveal to you some of the idols, and to really ask yourself, do I believe that God alone is all that I need? If I had no money in the bank, no food in the fridge, no way of knowing what was coming tomorrow, you know, right now we live in a, a credit card system where I'm good for at least 30 days. If I didn't have any of that, but I knew that he was with me, would I be okay? Do I truly believe that I'd be okay? There is one God, and he is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, sufficient for any and every need that we have. Every good and perfect gift we have comes from the Father of heavenly lights. He is all that we need. There is one God, church. That's where we have to start. There is one God who is infinitely perfect. Matthew 5, 48, Jesus speaking here and he says, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. Now he was trying to teach them that like, they, he wanted them to hear this and go, that's impossible. And he would have said, exactly. He was trying to show them they knew they couldn't live up. They couldn't measure up. They needed help. And he was trying to point them toward himself. I have the ability to make you perfect. We'll, we'll talk about this going forward. But the as your heavenly father is perfect. Do you agree, church, God has never, ever made a mistake? Do, do you believe this? Some kind of response would be very appropriate. <laughs> Otherwise, you're telling me no. Okay. Do we believe that God has never been late? Do we believe that God has never been lost and going, man, I don't know what to do? And, and he is perfect, infinitely perfect. He is like without end, perfect. In every situation for all time, perfect. God has never made a mistake. God has never got it wrong. God has never sinned. Amen? It's an easy one. James teaches this. Uh, in James chapter 1, he says, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. For God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. God can't even be tempted by sin. God has never even to the point of looking at sin thought, maybe. Never. He is unable to do wrong. He is unable to choose sin. What, what does the word sin mean? It comes from archery. You've heard me teach this before. What, what does it mean? Anybody know? To miss the mark. To aim at a target and go wide left. To not hit what you're aiming for. God has never sinned. He's never made the mistake. He's never missed. He is infinitely perfect. Paul, teaching in the book of Titus, says this about God. It, um, we're kind of starting in the middle of a thought. Don't worry about that part. He says, in the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. God is unable to sin. He is so infinitely perfect 
He couldn't choose sin. It's kind of weird. Even if he wanted to, he cannot go against his own nature. He is perfect, never failing. And we have to understand this, that there's not some external rule of good and God is just the best Boy Scout we've ever seen and he always makes the right choice. Every choice he makes, by definition, is good. Good is good because it's what God chose. This is hard for us to even kind of begin to wrap our heads around because we've always chose sin. That's always been an option for us. But what we know as good is good because it's what God chooses. He chooses love. He chooses holiness. He chooses charity and generosity and all of these things. And they are good because they're who he is. He is infinitely perfect. So why is God's perfection such a foundational doctrine for his followers? Why is this one of those things that, again, you pull this card out, the whole house of cards falls? Why is the perfection of God so foundationally important for us? Otherwise, you can't trust him. Okay. Can you trust a God who was only wrong that one time? What if he's wrong this time, too? Our trust in who God is is based on the fact that he's never gotten it wrong before, and I believe he never will going forward. What else? Okay. His perfection is foundational to his existence. Mm-hmm. He, if, he, if he isn't perfect, he doesn't exist. Okay. So God, the, the, the whole nature of God is that he's creator, eternal, and transcends yeah. what we know and establishes good. He's right. fallible. Right. If he has ever chosen sin, if he has ever fallen short, if he has ever lied, if he has ever made a mistake, whatever it may be, he's no longer a God worthy of our worship. He's fallible just like us. He's just doing it a little bit better. We serve an infinitely perfect God who has never got it wrong and never will going forward. This is the basis for our hope. This is why, and you find it all throughout Scripture, when, when the people of God are in a dark time, are in a difficult time, and they don't understand what's going on, what do we always have to come back and rely on? But I trust that he is good. I don't know why I'm going through this in life. I don't know why things are so hard. I don't know what to do with the hurt that I have. But what it always comes back to, but do I trust that he is good? Romans 8.28 says he, he uses all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Do I trust that he always does good? Do I trust in his perfection? The author of Hebrews, when talking about ancient Israel and coming into the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus, said, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no, great, no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply you. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise. We'll get through this. It's, it's, it's thick and heavy. He guaranteed it with an oath so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. 
We have this hope as an anchor for our lives, safe and secure. What is that hope? That God will always do what he said he's going to do. That God is infinitely perfect and can be trusted. And so from the promise to Abraham, he goes on in Hebrews to talk about what's the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Anybody know? Jesus. Sunday school answer here, people. Whenever I ask a question you don't know the answer to, it eats bananas, has a tail, and swings from, che- swings from trees, but I asked it in Sunday school, what's the answer? Jesus. All right? Whenever you're not sure, say Jesus. You're probably right. The answer to his promise he made to Abraham is Jesus. Hundreds, thousands of years later. But he says that Abraham was able to wait patiently. Why? Because he trusted in the perfection of his God. Whether I see it right now, whether I'm actually able to lay my hands on the thing that God promised, I'm able to wait patiently. Down at the end, it talks about with this hope that's an anchor for our lives, safe and secure, what that hope is, is the understanding that God will always do what he said he's going to do. He was perfect yesterday, he's perfect today, and he'll be perfect tomorrow. And I can trust in that. I can rest in the perfection of God. With no bounds, with no limits. There's nothing. He, he has never written a check his butt couldn't cash. He is always able to fulfill his promise because he is perfect. He cannot lie. He cannot make a mistake. He can't misread the situation and, oop, I dropped the ball on that one. He is always good. And he will always fulfill his promises. There is one God who is infinitely perfect, existing eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What do we call the big word, the doctrine of this last part? The Trinity. So I've heard a lot of people explain the Trinity. And they've said, I, I hear things like, the Trinity is like, and I'm always interested in what comes after that. I'm always in- intrigued by how people explain the Trinity A couple that I've heard, the Trinity is like an egg. There's one egg, but you also have distinct parts. You have shell, you have white, you have yolk. And so God is kind of like an egg. It sounds dumb, I know, but try to follow the logic. There's one thing called an egg, but it has three distinct parts. What's the problem with the Trinity is like an egg? They can be separated. You can take the shell and put it over here and separate the yolk from the white, and now they're just completely separate things. We do it all the time in baking, I'm told. Eggs are in brownies. Don't put the shell in. That's an important thing. Separate. You can separate them. Can you separate Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? No. So that one falls shy. The Trinity is like water. H2O. It's always H2O, right? And it can be steam, and it can be liquid, and it can be solid. It can be ice. What's the problem with this one? Modalism. Come on, man. Don't throw out modalism. (laughs) In layman's terms, what's the problem with God is the, the Trinity is like water? Can't be all three at the same time. You gotta pick one. You get steam, you get water, you get ice. You got to pick one at a time. 
And so this is th that kind of thinking, God is like water, is like going, God wears, and I'm wearing this hat, and then I take that off, and then I'm wearing this hat, and then it falls apart. God is, or the Trinity, excuse me, is like a man. I am someone's father, I am someone's son, and I am someone's husband. One person, three distinct roles. What's the problem with this one? Oh, yeah. She said, it's not like you're one person's father, son, and husband. We're not going to get into that one. That's weird. I'm one person. If you know me, you know me. I may act like husband here, act like father here, act, but I'm still one person. The thing about the Trinity, three distinct persons. The father does not act the same as the son. I mean, they do in terms of they always make that right choice. They have the same character, but they have different personalities, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here, here's the issue with the Trinity. It's both the issue and the beauty of the Trinity. There is nothing in nature, nothing created that we can point to and go, it's exactly like that. I, I, I don't care, like the, the egg, the water, the man. These are people trying to do the best they can to help people grab a hold of something that's really unattainable. There is nothing that we can point to in nature and go, God is exactly like that. And while that makes it difficult to stand up here and explain the Trinity, I think that makes it so unique and beautiful because it's also, there's no way it's man-made. We are not that creative. We would have gone, oh, it's like that mountain over there. And we, we would have just looked at something we saw and said, God's like that. But there is nothing ever created or ever will be created that is one unique thing and at the same time, three distinctive persons. I don't think we will ever understand it this side of eternity. And I think that that is such a beautiful truth. There's this mystery to the Trinity. It's something that you can explain doctrinally, but never fully grasp. And I love that about God. That there is this aspect to him that I always just have to, at some point, throw my hands up and go, you are too deep for me. I can never plumb that depth. I can never come to the point of understanding fully your nature. And some people, that's really going to frustrate because we got to have answers for everything. We don't have answers for this one. And I think that that is the beauty of the Trinity. God is one. There is one God, but in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three are always linked in Scripture, and they are always working toward the same end. We have the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The, the, the Trinity of God being baptized into his family. Not just Father, not just Son, not just Spirit, but the three working together. At Jesus' baptism in, in Matthew chapter 3, after Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And there came a voice from heaven, This is my beloved Son. I take delight in him. And we see the three moving together, linked together and moving in accord. 
trying to achieve the same purpose, moving towards the same goals. One of the, the things that I point to when it's like, okay, so how do we, how do we really know that, like, that the Trinity is a real thing, not just something some guy made up one day? When you look at the writers of Scripture, how interchangeably they use these different persons of God. Uh, let me explain. So who is the king of the kingdom? We talk a lot about the kingdom of God. Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God. Who's the king? Okay, remember the Sunday school answer. You can always try that one. Okay, Jesus. What is it, who does Jesus say is the king? His father. You'll find both in scripture. That Jesus is the king and that every knee will bow to Jesus on earth. and every, uh, He is above every name on earth. And you find all these things saying Jesus is the king. And yet Jesus says, I sit at the right hand of the king. And you find them used interchangeably. Let me ask you this question. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, who lives inside of you? The Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? It is the Holy Spirit who lives inside the people of God, right? Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. It's getting crowded. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 3, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So did he just do some kind of temple expansion inside and now there's kind of three separate rooms where they all live? There's this interchangeable nature of going, it is God who lives in you through the person of the Holy Spirit that is also the person of Jesus, that is also the Spirit of God. They are one. Yet there's times that we find them listed as distinct, and it talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of Jesus who intercedes for us and the Spirit who who convicts and, and works righteousness in us. They're distinctive, yet they're used interchangeably. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul praying for the church, and he says, I pray that Christ may make his home in your hearts through faith. But then in 2 Corinthians, these are all Paul, unless he was super confused about something. For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. It is the Father who lives in us and the Son in 2 Corinthians 1, now it is God, and this, I love it, this is putting them all together. It is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. There is this interchangeable nature in the scriptures with the persons of God, all distinct, yet interchangeable in this living in us and working and transforming us. You, you can't really read the scriptures without the Trinity. It just doesn't make sense. It gets real confusing real fast. From the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 1, it's been plural pronouns. God existing eternally in three persons, and that word eternally is really important. What does the word eternal mean? 
Don't, you could say Jesus, I know. It'd be a good joke at this point in time. What does the word eternal mean? Forever. Without end and without beginning. The, the, all three persons of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, have existed eternally. All of them without beginning. It's not like there was the Father and he went, hey, I'm kind of bored. I think I'll create a spirit and a son. God has always been three persons in one, in fellowship with himself, working together with himself from the very beginning. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our likeness. It's a weird thing. God is not Gollum from the Lord of the Rings who just didn't really know how to talk yet and says, like, talks to himself all the time. Like, it's the Father speaking to the, the Son and the Spirit, going, let's make man in our own image. Genesis 1, verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. You find other places where God is, the Father is kind of removed, and he's, he's speaking the world into existence. And at the same time, his spirit, the Holy Spirit, is right here getting his hands dirty in the mud. There has always been one God, but in three distinct persons, working in perfect unison together. Now again, there's nothing I can point to and go, it's just like this. That thing doesn't exist, and that is a beautiful truth for us as the church. So let me ask this question. Why is the Trinity such an important doctrine for us? Like this is one of those things where if there's a, another church or organization or something going, hey, let's partner together. Let's do this thing. But we look at them and we go, okay, do you believe in the Trinity? And they say no. Guess what? We can't partner together. This is one of those like truly foundational doctrines, beliefs that we have that this is kind of a make or break one why is the Trinity such an important doctrine? Most of us know that it is, but why? Like, what impact does it have? Why is it so foundational? Do we know? Because God. <laughs> God said so. Because God defined it. Because we believe that it's true in Scripture. We, we've looked at just a few things here today. It's one of those things distinctive to only the God of Scripture. There, there's no other God in all of creation that claims this. To be like the fancy word is triune, three and one at the same time. The triune God. There's no other God in all of existence, and by existence I mean that people have made up in the existence of man that has ever claimed this. And so part of it is that this is a very distinctive thing of the God of the Bible. Go ahead, Heidi. 
if the Trinity isn't what we've just said that it is, like let's say, okay, it's the Father, and he went, hey, man, these people chose sin. i got to figure something out. I'll create someone called Jesus and send him down. And did what Jesus do on the cross, did it really count? The, the whole point of, of our relationship with the Father, the, 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 the way that the door was opened to us was that God himself, Emmanuel, came down and died in our place. He didn't just make some like automaton to go down and stay on the cross long enough. It was God himself putting on flesh through the Son. The, the beauty of the Christian relationship with God now, since Christ's death and his resurrection, is that we have the Spirit of God, God himself living inside of us, dwelling with us. If you take the Trinity away, you cheapen all of those things, and now we have some substitute for God living inside of us. God is still distant. He's still far away. He's still unknowable. The beauty of the Trinity is that it makes God real to us. We are able to experience him, to walk with him, to talk with him, to know him. Because the scripture says no one's ever seen the Father. He is spirit. And no one this side of heaven has seen his face. But we can know Jesus. We can know the Holy Spirit intimately. And that is God with us. When you start to take that away, there's a lot of people that have tried this and all of a sudden Jesus becomes this angel who God just kind of like made able to do it really well. And so, and things get super weird, super quick because we try to bring God down to a place where we can understand. And this whole Trinity thing is tough. So let's cheapen Jesus and cheapen the Holy Spirit to try to make it fit in a box that I can understand. What you find when you do that is you're worshiping a different God. A God who is distant and unattainable. And what Jesus did on the cross is no longer sufficient. Because it wasn't God in the flesh coming and taking our place. It was just some really good guy. Whatever it may be. Only God is able to take away the sins of the world. Only God is able to come and dwell within the hearts of his people and transform us to become like him. Amen. Only God is capable of doing those things. And if we lose the Trinity, we lose the impact and the effect of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Does this make sense, church? Yeah. This is why it seems weird. If, if, again, if another church, they're, maybe they're doing something good or whatever, but we find out like they don't believe in the Trinity, we're not on the same bus heading in the same direction. We're worshiping different gods. We're singing songs to very different gods. And they're not brothers and sisters. And that's a tough thing to say. I don't say that lightly. But that's why this is such a foundational theology. All good theology begins and ends with a clear picture of who he is. If that gets muddled, things get wonky really quickly. We find ourselves down a path we were never intended to be down because we lost sight of who God is. All good theology, the study of God, that's what theology means, focuses on him. We have to have this clear picture, this clear foundation if we're going to be the people he's called us to be and end up in the place he's called us to end up. Would you pray with me? I'm ask the music team to come up. Lord Jesus, as we... We talk about some of this theology that we've, we've heard before and 
we know, but may you truly drive it down deep into who we are. And may this become that, that bedrock foundation like it was always meant to be for how we follow you, for who we see you to be, and ultimately for who we are becoming ourselves. May these, these doctrines, these theologies, may it be more than just words that we know or, or things that we agree to, boxes that we check, but may they truly be life-forming truths. There is one God. He is infinitely perfect. And he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May this truth shape our lives and even this week, God, as we interact with you. May you be glorified, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.